Listener Production. Dr. Evan Alexander spent over 25 years as a neurosurgeon. His transformative journey began when he experienced a profound near-death experience during a week-long coma caused by a rare brain infection. His journey from a staunchly science-minded perspective to one that acknowledges the mysteries of the afterlife has not only reshaped his personal beliefs, but has also sparked a broader conversation about the intersection of science and spirituality. After I read Dr. Alexander's book, which blew me away, I knew I wanted to talk to him. On this episode, we discuss all the questions I've been wanting to ask someone who has travelled to the other realm. Does God exist? What does the afterlife look like? How did you feel when you were there? Why are we as humans on this earthly plane? Are there other realms besides Earth? All these questions are answered as well as so much more. The best way is to show loving kindness, compassion, mercy, acceptance, when necessary, forgiveness for all of our fellow beings. That's the most profound lesson that comes from near-death experiences. It's pretty much universal among near-death experiencers. We are here to take care of each other. And if you hurt another, you're really hurting yourself. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Through my years of studying and researching the connection between human behaviour, personal growth and transformation, I have discovered the keys to unlocking greatness within others. In this podcast, I share stories and experiences from my own teachings, along with conversations with inspiring guests to help you learn the simple tips, habits practices and strategies to cultivate an extraordinary existence. Dr. Evan Alexander's first book, Proof of Heaven, A Neurosurgeon's Journey into the Afterlife, not only debuted number one on the New York Times bestseller list, but it remained in the top 10 for over a year. This is a conversation about a remarkable life, My hope is that this episode demonstrates to you that as the French philosopher said, we are not human beings having a spiritual experience. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. Strap yourselves in as this is an episode not to be missed. Dr. Eben Alexander, I want to talk to you about your life as a neurosurgeon. You've obviously operated on thousands and thousands of patients, as well as taught neurosurgery at some of the most elite universities in America. How did you get into being a neurosurgeon? What brought you to that point? I can thank my adoptive father for that. He was a globally renowned neurosurgeon, And uh, I basically followed in his footsteps. It's not quite as straightforward as that because he was so renowned and I thought I'd always kind of view myself as competing with him. So even when I decided to go into medicine, I thought, well, I won't go into neurosurgery. But then when I did a neurosurgery rotation in uh, medical school, I thought, oh my gosh, this is the best stuff in the world. And so I ended up following in his footsteps and it's a fantastic field. I absolutely adore every moment I spent uh, working in neurosurgery, both taking care of patients and also advancing the technology uh, to kind of minimize the trauma to patients. I mean, my heart and soul were absolutely into neurosurgery uh, from the get-go. And it's largely thanks to my father, who was a tremendous influence on my life. So what sort of patients would come to a neurosurgery and what type of surgeries would you do? 
Well, most of what I did, uh, uh, a lot of uh, brain tumors, both malignant and benign brain tumors. Uh, I also did my specialty training in cerebrovascular neurosurgery. That's clipping aneurysms, taking out arteriovenous malformations. I did two years of lab work as a resident uh, concerning that, and then also did a fellowship in England on cerebrovascular neurosurgery. And in addition, I did a lot of what's called functional neurosurgery, that is deep brain stimulators, uh, you know, altering the wiring of the brain through uh, very clever neurosurgical uh, kind of techniques and procedures. Those were really the main uh, focus of, of my life. A lot of brain tumor work, vascular malformations and AVMs, and of course, the functional work. Wow. So you're obviously very science-minded and, you know, my dad also is a doctor and I know he's like all about science, all about science and doesn't really believe so much in the spiritual realm. But everything changed for you on November 10th, 2008. Can you talk to us about that and how you became quite unwell? Yes. Well, important to point out, uh, you know, I believed very much what my father had taught me about the scientific aspect of things, and yet he never had a conflict between his religious beliefs. My father was very uh, kind of spiritual, uh, and he believed in power of prayer, and yet I, like many who grew up in the, in, the, uh, in the 70s, I knew science was the pathway to truth, but this has put me on the right pathway, what I went through, because you cannot uh, understand consciousness and the nature of reality without uh, shifting away from the materialist perspective which is how so many of us are trained. So what happened to me, November 10th, 2008, uh, you know, at the time I, I harbored very uh, materialistic uh, neurosurgical worldviews, that is that the brain creates consciousness. I fully believe that, uh, you know, our existence was birth to death and nothing more, so that when you died, your awareness went to zero. And I was in for an incredible surprise uh, with what happened to me. Uh, woke up at 4.30 in the morning with severe back pain, uh, headache, and then literally within uh, two or three hours, I had grand mal seizures and lapsed into coma. Uh, there's a myth out there in the, in the lay press that I had a medically induced coma, but I had a meningitis-induced coma, which is very important for the scientific interpretation of my case because meningitis is such a perfect model for human death. And I didn't realize it at the time, but with that severe back pain and headache, my brain was being overrun with an extremely primitive, aggressive, and absolutely should have killed me, gram-negative bacterial uh, meningoencephalitis. Uh, and then I was taken to the hospital. I don't remember any of that. I don't remember anything of the next week. I was gone from this world. But the journey I had occurred when the scientific uh, and medical parameters of my illness were so powerful, they showed that there was no way this brain could have harbored any kind of dream or hallucination. That's why the meningitis nature of my coma is so important for people to understand. So how did you get meningitis? Do you know how you ended up getting that? No, we, we never figured that out. The, my physicians didn't. And it was an even bigger surprise than that because on the second day, the cultures grew back E. coli. And if you do a medical literature search, you'll find E. coli meningitis almost always happens in newborns. It's very, very rare beyond the age of three months. So there I was, a 54-year-old male. My doctors had a tremendous mystery on their hands in trying to figure out how I'd acquired uh, this severe case of meningoencephalitis that almost always happens in uh, very young infants. 
And yet that was uh, basically, it's part of the whole big package. It was a gigantic surprise. And uh, in many ways, it was a gift to go through everything that I went through. As the story unfolds, you'll see why I consider it to be such a gift. And so you are in a coma for a couple of weeks and you have this near-death experience that you'll tell us about. And the reason that you know, and I've spoken to a few near-death survivors before, and they all kind of say the same thing in the sense of their experience is different. But they say the reason that they know they weren't hallucinating or that it was a dream is because it was more real than anything that they've ever experienced in their life. And you know, like a lot of the time we dream, we remember it when we wake up five hours later, we have no idea if we haven't written it down of what it was. But the reality of near-death experiences is as true as anything that they have experienced in their life. So I would love you to start telling us about what happened when you were having this near-death experience. And, and you started off not in a realm that sounded so pleasant. What you're saying is absolutely true. These uh, experiences are much more real than this world. This mm-hmm. world seems kind of murky and dreamlike by comparison. Uh, and that's why it was so shocking what I went through, especially uh, given the medical parameters of my case, which were also corroborated in a case report by three doctors not involved in my care. Uh, And that case report made it very clear that because of my Glasgow coma scale and all the other features of my case, there's no way I had a dream or hallucination that would do this. And uh, that's why the experience itself was so extraordinary. Um, And it turns out that even after I came out of coma and woke up and was fighting the ventilator and they pulled out the breathing tube, I then went through a 36 hour period of a paranoid delusional psychotic nightmare. Um, and those memories disappeared within a week or two. The memories from the deep coma experience are as persistent and stable and resilient as if the whole thing happened yesterday. I can remember it all perfectly now. That's how strong and, uh, I mean, exceptional these kind of memories are. Now, one important thing to point out about my journey is that uh, an atypical feature of my near-death experience was that I was amnesic. I had no memories of Evan Alexander's life. I had no knowledge of Earth, of of this universe. And when I first came back from the coma in the weeks when I was recovering, that made a little bit of sense to me. I thought, well, maybe because of all the damage to my neocortex, those memories were offline. But what I didn't realize was all the memories were going to come back because they came back completely within about two months post-coma. So there's a lot to be said not only about consciousness, but about memory itself. Uh, from my story. And this is, you know, every near-death experience is tailored for the individual who has it. That's the only one that they're important to. Uh, It's important for us to share them with others because the commonalities show us they point to a, a common realm. And yet my journey was really one of a neurosurgeon who had deep questions about brain, mind, and consciousness. And I was going to get those answered through this extraordinary experience. And as you say, it all started in um, a realm that was not necessarily pleasant. It was a realm that I came to, to name the earthworm's eye view. It was like being in dirty jello, like roots and blood vessels all around me. Uh, and it was kind of murky and dark and, and primordial. And of course, it sounds uncomfortable to people when I describe it, but given my amnesia, you know, there was no problem. I just accepted this is the reality that is. And uh, I had no complaints about it. But the good news is that didn't last forever. I was rescued from that kind of slow, foreboding, uh, subterranean realm 
uh, up into this brilliant ultra-real gateway valley that I ascended to uh, basically through a light portal that was associated with music. And music came to be a dominant theme of much of my journey, certainly become a major theme of my life since then in terms of meditation and the techniques I use for meditation. But uh, that musical portal is what ushered me up into that brilliant ultra-real gateway valley because that's where things started to seem ultra-real. Now, like in reflection, what do you think that kind of murkier realm, what was that? And then why do you think that you start there and you, you got pulled up into the higher realm? Well, you know, initially when I, was, when I uh, woke up, came back to this world and was trying to explain it uh, at a very early level, I thought, well, maybe that was the best consciousness that my brain could muster while it was soaking in pus. Because that's the thing that surprised my doctors so much was that I could even come back to this world and I tried to tell them about my spiritual experience and my doctors would pat me on the back and say, well, uh, you know, you can forget about it. The dying brain plays all kinds of tricks, but your brain was soaking in pus and we have no idea how you're even coming back to us. They had estimated... I'd gone from a 10% chance of survival early in the week to a 2% chance of survival by the end of the week with no chance of recovery. So my doctors just told me, forget about it. So initially I was my own worst skeptic. Uh, But then much later, as much more reading, much more studying, meditation to return to the experience, uh, I came to realize that that there's, uh, like in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, they discuss something called the bardos which is a realm that many people start out in when they're going into the the dying process. And it can seem kind of foreboding. Uh, And yet uh, there's really nothing, when you learn more about it, you realize there's nothing to fear about that. But the descriptions of it can sound kind of rough. And I think that was essentially what I faced was the very same kind of entryway to uh, this kind of extraordinary experience, which had multiple levels of reality. So then you get pulled up to this other level and there's this beautiful music. Was there someone that pulled you up to this other higher realm? Yes. Well, it was a musical portal that kind of led me up. And uh, I remember the notes, the melody were very important because they would uh, allow me to re-enter that portal multiple times during the journey because I would spontaneously tumble back down to that earthworm eye view. But uh, in this first passage, I entered what I call the Gateway Valley. And it was uh, rich with uh, beautiful earthly features. It was kind of like Plato's world of ideals, but for the individual soul. There was no death or decay at any point. I had no body awareness, but I was a speck of awareness. And that speck of awareness was on a butterfly wing. And there were millions of other butterflies looping and spiraling in vast formations. I remember seeing all these thousands of beings down in the meadow below, dancing, lots of joy and merriment and mirth sparkling waterfalls into crystal blue pools. It was an incredibly beautiful scene. And beside me on the butterfly wing was a beautiful young woman, sparkling blue eyes, high cheekbones, high forehead, broad smile. She never said a word to me. She never had to. But her message to me came through a mind melt, through a telepathic connection, very deep emotional connection, where she reassured me. You are deeply loved and cherished forever. You have nothing to fear. You are richly cared for. And I cannot tell you how reassuring and beautiful, validating that was. That was what showed me I was truly in a spiritual home. And it was very, very comforting. And it was in that setting that uh, that I, I remember 
uh, seeing a soft summer breeze that blew through. And that breeze I called later the divine wind or the breath of God. That was my first awareness in this amnesic state of that infinitely loving God force that was present throughout all of this reality that I was visiting. When you were in this state, you weren't thinking about anything to do with your life back on earth or anything like that. You were just present, enjoying the way that everything looked, which is incredible. And I remember you said that there was, so with thoughts came the answer straight away and it wasn't like a yes or no answer. There was no time between cause and effect, which I think is a really interesting thing to talk about. It was that that happened, you know, simultaneously, the thought and then the answer came straight away and it was all coming to you telepathically. Can you talk to us a bit about that? Well, that's one of the things about uh, these spiritual journeys that make them ineffable, you know, beyond our language, so hard to describe, is because you're really outside of space and time. You're outside of our normal notions of a narrative and, and kind of a story. Um, I mean, when you, when you review large series of near-death experiences, you hear about life reviews, and people often describe the life review as birth to death, everything in between, even beyond uh, you know, next life, prior life, that's apparent to you at the same time. Uh, and that's really one of the things that makes it so complex and difficult to describe. And it's really kind of a, 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 a theater for the soul, because this is where we can kind of acknowledge and see ourselves in that much grander perspective, far outside and beyond the ego perspective that we're so used to in these bodies, in these lives. Because in that realm, you're really viewing from the soul perspective. And it is far grander and, and far more uh, kind of consolidating, assimilating, integrating in terms of information. That's why we get so much understanding of ourselves in these kinds of journeys and of our relationships with others and of our really our um, kind of shared meaning and purpose with the universe at large. So it's a very grand scale of adventure that's uh, far beyond the normal little theater of our ego operations and our narrative of telling a story of our lives. But it's a, it's a beautiful thing to go through. And that's what so many near-death experiencers have come to witness, is that incredible sense of integration and purpose and meaning with the universe at large. So you mentioned God, and I want to talk a bit about that, because you also have a name that you found when you're over in that realm that you believe that is God's name. And also, how did you know it was God? And is God external to us, internal? Talk to us a bit about it. I really, as I said, I had this kind of sense of the breath of God, that divine wind in that gateway valley. But it really took the next step of the journey for me to more fully appreciate the relationship with God. And that was when the angelic choirs that were fueling all the incredible festivities and joy and mirth in this realm, you know, in the, uh, in the Gateway Valley realm, uh, all of that collapsed down. And I remember seeing all four-dimensional space-time collapsing down the spiritual realm with that whole different ordering of deep time or meta time that allows for simultaneous experience of your whole life, all of that collapsing down until I entered what I call the core. The core was an infinite inky blackness, but filled to overflowing with the divine love of that God force. And in fact, in the core realm, where uh, all dualities, you know, good, good and evil, dark and light, masculine, feminine, everything consolidates into one in the core realm. It was a completely unified realm of pure love as the source of our existence. And that's where I recognize 
that that God force was the essential um, origin and source of our conscious awareness. So we're never, ever distant from that God force, even though way out here in the material world, you can fool yourself into believing that. But ultimately, right at the core of our consciousness, we all have uh, access to that beautiful, infinitely loving God force. And to me, that was an incredibly reassuring and uh, validating uh, part of the spiritual home, the nature of, of this journey, because my words may sound foreign, but I know when I give talks with hundreds of other near-death experiencers, everybody kind of gets on the same page. The communication is far beyond the words themselves uh, because there's a commonality and kind of the heart center of communication. And that's where I think the book Proof of Heaven did so well was because thousands and thousands of people who thought they'd had this weird experience all of a sudden resonated with what they read in my book. And they could remember similar kind of feelings and emotions. And, and that sense of security, that sense of being cared for is uh, something that is, is beautiful. And it's uh, important for people to, to know when they're facing death of the physical body that there really is nothing to fear, that there's this incredible sense of expansion and acceptance and, and oneness uh, that is all around that healing force of love. And you had mentioned uh, God and more than 90% of near-death experiencers over thousands of years, and this includes many who were previously atheist or agnostic, more than 90% of them come back believing in the reality uh, or knowing the reality of that God force is truly existing. And you also had mentioned the name that I gave it. Well, when I first came back to this world, I was trying to make sense of all this. The word God was a puny little human word that had a lot of baggage to it. And so what I used was the word that to me described my, my sensation in that core realm of that beautiful uh, uh, loving presence because I remember the sound of alm, this deep resonant uh, sense of alm. And that was what I brought back to this world. And I realized it doesn't matter if you want to call that force God, Allah, Brahman. Vishnu, Jehovah, Yahweh, Great Spirit. The naming is uh, taking you away from the recognition that we're all talking about the same thing. And it is a, a, a force of pure uh, love that connects us all at that deepest level. So did you hear the sound of Om when you were in that other realm? And when you felt because, you know, from my understanding, you know, when I go into meditation, I'm going into that divine kind of realm. And what I've been taught is that, you know, it's so similar to your story. That's why I loved it so much, that we all come from oneness and love and source. And we come down to this earthly realm and then there's duality. There's a light and a shade. There's evil and dark. And we have this because we have choice. To have choice, we need to have duality, which can be so uncomfortable because we're there with positive and negative emotions or we have good and bad even. But in the realm that you were in, none of that exists. There's just that pure love state and there's no judgment or anything like that. There is only that feeling of connectedness. So I'd like to talk a bit about if you actually heard the sound of Om when you were there and what the feeling of that divine presence of God felt like. Well, yes, I absolutely heard it. That's why I use that. And people often ask me, what was the origin of that Om sound? 
And I would simply say that in the core, with the entire universe shrunken down to this complex oversphere as a teaching tool, that was just the resonance I heard in that infinite cavity of eternal proportions. So uh, it might not make so much sense to a musical physicist, but uh, the reality is that's what I witnessed. And to me, it was a neutral term to use to define that uh, presence, that God force. And I think the important thing for people to, to get is just how much it seems so much like our spiritual home. It is so comforting. It's, it brings back a memory. We all remember being there because we've been there before. Uh, that was one of the one of the rich and, and deep lessons of this journey was our souls come back again and again. I had grown up, you know, in a Christian church where we weren't really taught about reincarnation, and yet reincarnation uh, was uh, clear as a bell from my core experience is something uh, to expect. And that loving presence of uh, that God force is something that is really undeniable. It's it's really the biggest gift that people get in near death experiences and bring back to this world. And uh, there is no judgment from that force, but it turns out that what we recognize in these journeys, and this is why near-death experiences are crystal clear on this message to humanity, and that is that we are to lead our lives, if we want to uh, have the, the most easy journey in that phase of our lives, you know, when we leave this world, it's important that we live our lives showing kindness, mercy, acceptance, love for others, unconditional love. The more we can do that in the choices we make in this life, the easier will be our passage through those realms when we leave the physical plane. So it's not as if it, you, know, you can do anything you want and get away with it. Uh, in fact, I would say that uh, some of the uh, you know, most near-death experiences are very pleasant, 95% plus. But there are about 5% of them that are they're distinctively uh, kind of unpleasant and kind of foreboding, hellish NDEs, as they're called. And I think the majority of those are simply from people who were so busy handing out pain and suffering to other people that when they had to experience that on the receiving end during their life review, uh, it was not very pleasant. Because a life review, interestingly enough, when you review big series of these things, for one thing, it's like a reliving of events, not just a remembering. And uh, more than 75% of people describe it as reliving events from the perspective of other people around you who were influenced by your thoughts and actions. And so the big, hard lesson from NDEs, uh, as much as it's uh, you know, all about comfort and love when we get to that stage in our spiritual journey, it's very important to point out that if you've been busy uh, hurting other people and being greedy and selfish, you're going to experience that on the other end, you know, in a very unpleasant fashion when you leave this world. So the biggest lesson of NDEs is not what happens when we die, but how do we best prepare ourselves for that part of our journey? And the best way is to show loving kindness, compassion, mercy, acceptance, when necessary, forgiveness for all of our fellow beings. That's the most profound lesson that comes from near-death experiences. It's pretty much universal among near-death experiencers. There's no doubt about it. We are here to take care of each other, and if you hurt another, you're really hurting yourself. 
That's so true. And I spoke to Caroline Mace, who's a spiritual teacher a while ago on this podcast. And she was telling me a bit about someone that she worked with who had had a near-death experience and had a life review, which I just find so fascinating. And the story stood out to me because she said this man was showing things in his life that weren't significant to him. So for example, when he was young, he was six or seven, he stole some lollies at a convenience store, something that he didn't think twice about. But at the time, the man had had so many people steal from him that that was the last straw that broke the camel's back. And basically, the man ended up shutting up his store. He was so upset with humanity because he just had people steal from him. And and in this life review, he was shown that, that that's the consequences of his actions. And also in return, there was one day where he helped out an elderly lady, again, not thinking twice about it, but really doing something good. And the effect of that lady was so huge on this man showing her a good deed that it changed her life forever. So I think what you say is so pertinent because... Sometimes we think, you know, we have to do all these bold things, you know, we're good and everyone needs to see or maybe being rude to someone, the barista or whoever it is, it's not a big deal and we were angry that day. But from what you're telling me and what I've heard, it is a big deal. It is a big deal. And we're coming onto this earth to show love and compassion. We're always being watched. Can you talk to us a bit about that? Well, I would say that it's it's all there. I mean, when we go through life reviews, Like I said, uh, uh, almost half of people who describe life reviews talk about uh, how it's a reliving of events. You revisit the events. It's not just a remembering. These are not vague memories. But it's showing us the kind of power of the the spiritual nature of the universe and how, uh, no, we never get away with kind of mistreating Mm -hmm. others or even mistreating ourselves. It's why forgiveness is so important. You don't forgive Uh, so that the other, you know, is freed up, you forgive to liberate your heart. You know, if you're holding, you know, a a kind of vengeance against someone else or uh, for something that you feel you were wronged, uh, that is really something that holds you prisoner. And so it's important to understand that living really from the heart and with this uh, sense of, of loving and caring for others is so critical. You know, the golden rule, treat others as you would like to be treated. That's exactly what is going on with life reviews of, in near-death experiences writ large across all cultures, uh, is we really need to take care of each other. And it's one of the reasons why the deepest lessons of NDEs are so important in the current era. Because in the current era, the kind of false sense of separation that comes from materialist thought, you know, that we're separate beings uh, and that we're competing. You know, that's a false interpretation of Darwinian evolution, as opposed to acknowledging that collaboration and cooperation are more important to biological systems than that competition. Uh, and yet in the 20th century, we, we let things go wild with this false sense of separation and materialism. And it's, it's uh, high time that the world learned the deep lessons of NDEs, and they are, because I can tell you as a scientist, the science of consciousness is moving beyond that bleak and paltry fiction of materialist thought and its false sense of separation, and uh, we will come to prove in 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 a scientific fashion the reality of these experiences are teaching us deeply how we need to treat each other, and that love is ultimately the guiding principle. And that's what needs to return to this world. That's what the science of consciousness, especially 
with uh, near-death experiences at the tip of the spear, but uh, there are many other uh, facets of that argument about the science of consciousness that show us the reality of this and that we're all in this together. We're essentially sharing one mind. Mm. Uh, and it's that sharing that is so important that we need to take care of each other. Truly to hurt another is to hurt oneself. And this is one of the deepest lessons in NDEs. There's a lot of darkness in our world at the moment and something that you said in your book and I kept, like I actually listened to it as an audio book and you narrated, it's beautiful. And I kept listening back to this chapter and it gave me a lot of solace considering what's going on. You said, Earth is a place where evil is able to gain a lot of influence. Evil was allowed to occasionally gain the upper hand by the creator as this was giving the gift of free will to beings like us. But the sum of evil was like one grain of sand on a vast beach compared to the goodness, abundance, hope and unconditional love that the universe was awash with. That's the kind of bathing in that ocean of love that comes with an NDE. That's what we can bring back to this world. Uh, that love is uh, its the thing that changes people's lives. You know, most people who have had a near-death experience have absolutely no fear of death. They realize it's not the end of life, that in fact, it's a liberation from the shackles of the prison. And it takes us into a realm that is filled with that love and kindness, compassion, uh, with all the brotherhood and sisterhood of, of people not excluding other people and, and fomenting these kinds of conflicts and wars and violence that we see so commonly in our society, but that teaches a whole different way of being that to many people is very natural. You know, our news cycles and our smartphones beeping with all the headlines of the, the bad news in the world never lets us uh, away from that uh, kind of myth uh, that there's that much badness out there. There's a lot of good in people. Uh, I know when we see natural disasters, uh, often that brings out the best in people. They come out to help each other. And, and we see a lot of that. And we see a lot in our modern world, too. Even with the warfare and violence, uh, we see uh, oases of, of people trying to help other people. And the more that I think the, the near-death experience community and these kind of lessons can take hold on the world, the more people pay attention to this, the more they recognize that there is a scientific validity to this notion of the one mind that we're all sharing, that we're all in this together, and that we really must take care of each other because it's an imperative from these kind of journeys. They teach us that that egocentric, narcissistic, it's my way or the highway, uh, is not really the way the universe works. And the more we can open up to these deep lessons of near-death experiences with love and kindness and compassion, the better the world becomes for society at large, but also for each and every one of us individually. And the good news is you don't have to have an NDE to fully get this. Centering prayer, meditation, going within, these are all ways of discovering these deep truths of unity and the oneness of mind. Why would the, like, you know, I know about free will, obviously, we're talking about it now, and that's why we're on this earthly realm. But knowing what you do, why would the creator let there be things like the war, holocausts, things like that? Like, are we here to learn lessons? That's apparently what, you know, I've heard. What is your understanding of why we're on earth and why sometimes there seems to be so much, really a lot of cruelty? 
Well, there certainly does seem to be a lot of cruelty and hardship and man's inhumanity to man in our our current world. In fact, I thought we were making tremendous progress, you know, over the last few decades. Uh, and in many ways, I feel like we've taken some steps backwards over the last 10 years. Uh, I thought we were really getting much closer to world peace and disarmament. Uh, and I think it's just because it takes, the, you know, the darkness and evil are what energize uh, a lot of people to come around and realize how we we need to resist that and we need to live our lives in a different fashion that is much more uh, conducive to uh, to peace and love and harmony in this world. Uh, it turns out that uh, a lot of the kind of narcissism and uh, materialist uh, egocentric focus uh, in many ways is leading us towards a destruction of the world in the form of corporate greed, for example, with the energy industry. Uh, you know, we've known scientifically since the early 20th century that burning carbon-based fuels would heat up the planet. You know, I was a chemistry major in college. Carbon dioxide's a very stable molecule, and it lasts for a long, long time. And we're just about out of using uh, the ocean as a buffer for carbon dioxide. And it's that corporate greed that is really getting us into deep trouble. So there are many different fronts where this notion of taking care of each other and not being so focused on, you know, egocentric accumulation of, of resources and things like that really needs to become the dominant theme. And I guess it's just a question of how far down the rabbit hole we want to go, how much pain we want to suffer. But sooner or later, we need to learn these lessons from the hardships that we're bringing on ourselves. Uh, and those hardships should lead us towards making better choices. You know, we call ourselves homo sapiens. Sapiens means wise. Uh, but in many ways, as much as I can see the wisdom in modern science with medical advances, communications, transportation, etc., uh, when I look at the bigger picture, I'm not so sure how wise human beings have been to get us into this trouble with the climate change uh, and with modern warfare and conflict. Mm. And um, there are plenty of places where we can start to correct all this. And I think that the hardships and difficulties that we bring on ourselves, because that's exactly what we're doing, uh, are what are there to energize uh, our interests and our momentum to try and do otherwise and try and make the world a better place. But I promise you that a solution to all of this is really acknowledging this notion of the one mind and how we're all bound together through the forces of love. And that's where healing and compassion and kindness can bring us into wholeness and more alignment with our purpose for existence in the first place. When you had the near-death experience, I wonder if you learned or believe in the laws of the universe. Say, for example, the law of reciprocity, what you put out, you receive also kind of the law of attraction, which is a similar thing. What you think and your actions attract more of that into your life, be it good or bad. Did you see that at all? Well, I would say I saw that uh, beautifully. And not only that, that the science that I study for the 15 years since my coma experience also shows very clearly how powerful our, our will is in determining the reality that unfolds for us. You know, in fact, materialist science would scoff at you for claiming to have free will because some materialists take it so far as to say that conscious awareness is nothing more than chemical reactions and electron fluxes in the brain of material that's following the laws of physics, chemistry, and biology. 
So they would say you have no free will at all. And yet I think free will is absolutely a feature of what's known as quantum indeterminacy in the modern study of quantum physics. But once you put all of that together, you start realizing that, yes, our free will is extremely important. It is what determines what happens in this world and how our reality unfolds. And again, the importance of the one mind uh, is this notion that we're all in this together and we need to take care of each other. So every bit of that emerged, not just from my own personal experience and from thousands of other people that I've talked to for zero, similar experiences, but also from the scientific study of consciousness and what it proves to us about the nature of the one mind. So let's talk about that to give people examples. So for example, if I'm a selfish person and I'm, and a lot of that's based on fear. So say, for example, if I have this podcast and other people have the same, oh my God, that's not great. And I go into this kind of fearful state and become competitive, then that energy will come back to me. But if I'm in within my life, very open, sharing contacts, very forthcoming to people who are doing a similar thing, very giving, I don't have that fear of having less than, then I receive that abundance that I'm giving out. Is that correct? That is absolutely true. It's really focusing on the higher good mm. and contributing to that higher good. So if you kind of go through life thinking of, you know, all of this about the near-death experience and what's going to happen with your life review, and you're trying to just set the stage so that you'll have the easiest and most uh, wonderful uh, uh, kind of dying experience, you're doing the right thing. Yeah. And it's about helping others. You know, it's especially important for our youth of today to understand because some people misleadingly teach that, the, you know, ego, grab all you can for yourself. And yet that is a ticket for uh, extreme unhappiness. Uh, the happiness comes from serving that higher good, helping other people. I mean, certainly that was a concept I was used to from my medical work. Uh, but it's something I, that I would say has expanded tremendously uh, because of my experience uh, in, in the near death and also all my work with thousands of other people who have had similar experiences mm -hmm. studying these things, you know, for the benefits that they brought other lives to other lifetimes. Uh, and it really is a tremendous gift, but it's, it's really a simple principle. Uh, and it's about the higher good and taking care of others. But I think the more we can entertain that and start to really uh, feel the joy of helping other people, especially the least, the last, and the lost, it obviously implies that, uh, you know, we change our attitude, for example, to refugees from war zones and things like that. Uh, we need to take care of people. Uh, and I, I would say the more we actually take care of people and, and work for the higher good, the less we have to worry that somebody's going to be coming after us uh, because they don't like us. Absolutely. Uh, you know, when you help other people, they tend to, to reciprocate. I mean, I've seen it so much in my life. The more that I help people that I have gotten, you know, in the last however many years, people are so generous to me and I just feel so fortunate and so loved by that. And it's this beautiful cycle because you're generous, people are generous back. And it's not even like the same person's generous back. You just have it all kind of coming in this beautiful circle. So I can see it in real time playing out. And it's just, it's such a beautiful show of humanity. 
But something else I wanted to touch on is this idea, you know, it's kind of like that rum dust quote that we're all walking each other home and that home really is that other realm because, as you said, we've been there lifetimes before we, we, you know, finish on this earthly realm and go back there. One of the interesting things that you talked about in your book was that there are other realms that aren't heavens, shall we call it, where there are beings that are a lot more evolved than us. And I've, I've learned about this at quite a few of the retreats I've gone to, that there are these beings that watch over us who are more evolved than us, but they're not kind of like angels or anything like that. Can you talk to us about that? Well, yes, I, I, I did mention that in Proof of Heaven. I didn't go into great detail, but uh, the example I used, I said there were civilizations that were as far advanced beyond us as we are beyond earthworms. So, I mean, just to give you an idea of the incredible scale of what what I experienced. And, uh, um, you know, I'm not sure what to make of all that, but I do believe that a lot of what we have going on in our world today, and this certainly includes the UAP phenomenon, uh, uh, you know, unidentified aerial phenomena. Um, and a lot of what I have to say about this comes from my discussions with my good friend Edgar Mitchell, who was the Apollo 14 astronaut who walked on the moon. And, uh, and I stayed with him several times in Florida when I was giving talks down there back in 2014. Uh, but he was convinced that these, uh, a lot of these beings are here to help us. And he knew of events where certain orb-appearing uh, vehicles, things like that, uh, we're interfering with military satellites and with nuclear tests. And I believe that's exactly what's going on. Uh, I mean, it's pure madness that we ha- we are now considering uh, amping up again on nuclear weapons on this world. The thing humans must do is get rid of nuclear weapons. It's absolutely abominable that we still have these things around and we're taking steps in the wrong direction right now. But I think all of us uh, as human beings should unite together uh, and remember that that's, you know, nuclear weapons are in the hands of the, you know, autocrats and uh, uh, leaders who uh, do not have humanity's best interest in mind. So it's really up to all the rest of us to realize this is not nation versus nation, but this is really about humanity versus the people who would uh, cause such madness and bring it upon us. We need to get rid of them. We need to get rid of these autocrats. I know in the United States, we need to take the lead in denuclearization. Uh, and I believe, though, that we, we do have help in the form of these advanced uh, societies, whether uh, they're uh, from other planets or potentially also representing humans, time traveling from the future to try and help us. Uh, but ultimately, uh, we need to uh, demilitarize our planet. Uh, it's one of the worst signs that we are not homo sapiens at all, uh, but you know, one of the most ignorant forms of civilization that would consider planetary suicide as an option. And not only that, we're wasting tremendous resources uh, that could be used for education, for agriculture, for uh, taking care of people, for health care. And all that money is being absolutely wasted on this uh, gigantic uh, military buildup around the world. It's high time the deep lessons of near-death experiences of taking care of others uh, come back to us uh, so the voting public votes these people out of office, those who would be warmongers and who perpetuate this misuse of public funds uh, for militarization.
I want to talk about how we don't die alone. And you touch on this in your book, Proof of Heaven. And it's funny because the way that I actually came about your work and your name was when I had John Edward on this podcast. He came to Melbourne and he was in the studio with me. And then I, he invited me to see his show and he's, he was talking about, um, you know, a lot of people there were obviously grieving loved ones who had passed. And he said, I just want you to know that no one ever dies alone. And if you want to know anything about this work, check out the work of Dr. Eben Alexander. So I quickly wrote your name down in my phone. And then I did check out your work and read your book. But I want to talk to that because a lot of people, we all have people that have passed. And I think one of the worst fears for us is that they suffered and that they died alone. And I know that there's been a lot of experiences where people in the days before they pass start talking to loved ones who are over the other side. And in a sense, we know that they're in between both realms when they're in that kind of state where they're slowly starting to die. They're going in and out of consciousness of this realm and of the other realm and that they're able to access those that have passed before them. And I want to give a couple of examples that that I know about because I think they're really powerful. A friend of mine is a journalist named Leslie Keane who did the beautiful Netflix series Surviving Death. And there was a really haunting episode within that that I'll never forget. And it was this beautiful girl and she was about eight years old and she was dying of a, of a brain tumour and she'd had it for a little while. And there was one day where her mum walked past her room and she heard, she was, the little girl was in the room by herself and she heard this little girl talking to someone um, and there was no one in the room. And then a few hours later, she said to her daughter, who were you talking to? And the daughter said to her, Mother Mary came and I was, it makes me want to cry. And I was speaking to her. <laughs> and, <laughs> and what's so beautiful is... <laughs> She said, I knew that my daughter was going to die a couple of days later. And she did. But I knew that she was going to be okay because Mother Mary, which was her belief and the daughter's belief to do with their spirituality, had come to get her. And it's so beautiful. So beautiful. And I know that there's so many stories like that. So I'd like, you know, for people that are grieving out there, I'd love to for you to just talk to that. Well, thank you for sharing that beautiful story. And I can tell you my, my own mother had uh, had this uh, similar experience when she was passing over. She was, this is my adoptive mother. She was 99 years old. It was in April of 2010. And she spent the last four days of her life uh, pretty much unresponsive with pulmonary infection and, and fever and all that. But two nights before she passed, she woke up, got out of bed, which her nurse said was impossible. Uh, woke the nurse up at 2.30 in the morning and said, my mother's here, my mother's here, call my children, she's really here. And w when I heard that, I was traveling at the time, but I knew I'd better get home. By the time we got home, mom was back in her unresponsive state and she passed very peacefully two days later. But I can assure you that these are real stories. In fact, uh, there's something called terminal lucidity or paradoxical lucidity which can occur in people who might have been comatose for uh, months or years even. And uh, what happens is right as they approach death, they are visited by the spirit of a loved one who has departed. And in, in the story in, in Proof of Heaven, it was actually 
a good friend of mine. He was the head of one of the top neurosurgical programs on Earth, you know, a very skeptical scientist, and yet he saw this at his father's bedside when his father was passing. And his father had had been with the the grandmother of my friend, his own mother, uh, back during the Holocaust. And he never talked about losing her during the Holocaust. She had died there. Uh, and yet here on his deathbed with my, my friend at the bedside, her spirit was right there at the foot of the, de- foot of the bed. And the father had been uh, comatose for a few weeks. Now he woke back up beautiful smile on his face, recognizing the spirit. And my friend said he was absolutely convinced she was really there, even though he couldn't see her, but he knew the father could see her and the father responded so beautifully and then passed with a smile on his face. Now, there's much bigger kind of scientific evidence supporting all this. Gregory Shushan has written about uh, near-death experiences in all kinds of cultures, including a lot of ancient cultures and found that the most universal feature is having loved ones who have departed the physical plane show up uh, and escort us over. And it's not just in the NDE literature. For example, Christopher Kerr, who wrote this book, um, Death is But a Dream, he's in uh, Hospice Buffalo, and all he does is hospice work. So he's not reporting on near-death experiences, but in hospice and terminal care, you have the very same things happen. As people are approaching death, loved ones who passed over appear to them. Now, before my coma, I would have told you that's wishful thinking. You know, they see who they want to see. I now know for a fact it's not wishful thinking at all. These are very real spiritual experiences. And when you study the science of consciousness and begin to realize the brain is a filter that allows primordial consciousness in, but that the end of the brain doesn't mean the end of conscious awareness, you start to recognize how these connections with our souls and soul groups are very important. And that's where the whole field of what's called after-death communications is so critical, because in after-death communications, people have very real connections with loved ones who have passed. Many of those stories are so profound, you realize they go far beyond wishful thinking. And it's really just time for our culture to wake up to the fact that we are all eternal souls. No one ever dies alone. It's all about uh, love and connection and uh, kindness and compassion and mercy. Uh, And that's what we need to start living our lives expressing are these deep truths of our interconnections that transcend the death of the brain and body. You talked earlier about like how we can connect to that realm and I've done a lot of work on trying to connect to that realm every day because for me there's nothing more beautiful. And, you know, I've been a big meditator for many, many years now and I do these very, very deep meditations sometimes for two and a half hours, sometimes with breath work, sometimes with not. And I find that that's where the connection comes for me. And like, why would I spend a day not connecting to that divine realm? Because to me, it is just so beautiful. How do you believe that we can, on this earth, make those connections? Well, I, I read about 150 books in the two years after my coma on quantum physics, consciousness, spirituality, East and West, etc. And then I finally realized that I needed to explore my own consciousness. I needed a powerful tool for meditation. Uh, and I, I found something called binaural beat brainwave entrainment. Uh, and it's, it appealed to me as a neuroscientist because of the way that these slight differences in the tones that you're listening to, to the two ears, the slight differences have an impact on the lower brainstem. 
And every sound you've ever heard, every chant, anthem, hymn that might have engendered a transcendental state of conscious awareness, those are all processed up in the acoustic cortex of the temporal lobes and circuits that have arisen in the last two or three million years in Homo sapiens and primates. Very different are binaural beat brainwave entrainment, like sacred acoustics. You can go to sacredacoustics.com to learn more, but sacred acoustics uses this differential frequency uh, to the two ears, and that's intersecting in the, in the lower brainstem. And that's a circuit that arose more than 300 million years ago. And I think you have to try it to, to kind of get what I'm talking about, but it creates a wavering sensation in the lower brainstem. There's a general principle in, in hypnotic regression to use an oscillating uh, visual stimulus. You know, people watch a pendulum or something like that. And what that's doing is a driving an oscillation down in the brainstem. Likewise, with EMDR, eye movement desensitization reprocessing, which is a very effective treatment for, um, for post-traumatic stress disorder, all that's doing is rapid eye movement uh, cause an oscillation in the midbrain. So with sacred acoustics, you're taking it one level lower to a more primitive level in the brain, and that is where... I think it causes such an incredible uh, effect. And if you go to the testimonials page on sacredacoustics.com, you realize people have had tremendous benefit from this kind of technology. In fact, there is a, uh, a peer-reviewed scientific paper doc by Dr. Anna Eusen. It's in the Journal of Nervous and Mental Diseases in uh, January of 2020. Uh, and she uh, reports on using binaural beat brainwave entrainment to alleviate uh, anxiety in her very busy New York City uh, psychiatric practice. And surprisingly, she finds that using sacred acoustics tones uh, over two weeks' time gave a 26% reduction in anxiety symptoms compared to only 7% reduction in people who had talk therapy alone. So in other words, a very powerful example of sacred acoustic spinal beat brainwave entrainment to alleviate uh, anxiety. And I promise you, it does far more than that when you, when you use it for the kind of things we're talking about, to connect with souls of departed loved ones, to kind of connect with spiritual guidance, to come to a deeper sense of your purpose in life and meaning, um, you know, any interpersonal conflicts. I mean, there are many, many ways that I use daily meditation. I use sacred acoustics every day for an hour or so, and I highly recommend it to people uh, who want to change their lives in a positive direction. I learned that when we connect to that higher realm, sometimes we need to be able to go to them. We need to lift our vibration high enough to go to them. They can't lower their vibration to be down to us. And I, you know, had this incredible experience many years ago when I went to this big meditation retreat and we were doing, I think it was like a four and a half hour meditation. And within that, I was able to connect with my grandmother and my grandpa who had departed. And that was an incredible experience. I wonder, through your NDE, did you learn a bit about that, how we do connect with those souls that have departed? Is it to do with the level of vibration we're at? And also how are sort of like mediums and psychics able to access that realm? I think it's by focused attention and intention. Yeah. Uh, and also the most important step, of course, is to get the little ego mind out of the way. Uh, that is ultimately the goal of every bit of this, is to realize I am not that little voice in my head. So many people think that the voice in your head is your consciousness. And I love the way Michael Singer puts it in his book, The Untethered Soul. 
he calls that voice in your head your annoying roommate. And that is it. Your consciousness is your awareness. And that's the part of you that expands tremendously when the brain and body die, when you go into an indie or a dying experience. And you can duplicate or, or you can uh, uh, mimic that in many ways through meditation. But ultimately what you're trying to do is, is learn, and, and I've learned to do it very well with writing the tones of sacred acoustics. I let that little ego voice in my mind state an intention, make a request for that meditation. But then that, that little voice goes into timeout. And I've learned to use the power of the sacred acoustics tones to get into that very deep state, which is of that higher vibrational level that you're talking about. And in fact, a very concrete example, I report in the book, Living in a Mindful Universe, and that is how I connected with my father's soul two and a half years after my coma. You know, my adoptive father, I mentioned him before, very important in my life. He had passed over four years before my coma. And yet surprising to me, and this had a lot to do with that amnesia and the reason for the amnesia, but my father was not there in my NDE. If I had scripted it, he would have been there front and center. And yet I had that beautiful guardian angel on the butterfly wing as my spiritual guide. And I found out two and a half years after my coma in deep meditation, uh, using these differential frequency uh, brainwave for meditation, uh, I encountered my father's soul. And he made it very clear to me why he could not be apparent to me, as he put it, with his little sense of humor, uh, during my NDE. And yet it was very clear to me uh, the deep truth of what I was seeking at the time uh, came through in this, this giant thought ball, as I call it, where my connection with my father two and a half years post-coma and deep meditation taught me a tremendous amount of what I'd been seeking. Uh, and it was all about learning to uh, put that little ego voice into timeout and to use proper intention and attention at the beginning of meditation uh, to start, uh, you know, asking of the universe that which I want it to present to me. And you have to be patient. It doesn't necessarily happen on the first or second try. But the more you do it and the more you develop uh, a practice of going within, uh, the better you become at this kind of thing. And it, it ends up benefiting your life, I promise. Uh, people who uh, take that time to go within uh, over time, it gives you a tremendous benefit in terms of coming into alignment with the soul you came here to be. I've got two questions from that. Firstly, do you believe when you ask, you receive? And do we receive everything? And then secondly, can you talk to us about the power of prayer? Because that was quite prolific in your story. Well, I think uh, when we ask, we often do receive, but not necessarily what we're asking for. You know, so that's why I like to keep it kind of general. Sometimes it's just, what do I need to know right now? What is important in my life now? Keep it wide open. If I get too specific, and certainly this gets to that whole business about the secret, you know, uh, kind of visualizing a Mercedes in your driveway, I don't think that's very effective at all. I think it's really focusing on the higher good, on the love of the universe for self and others. This is where we start to really gain uh, benefit in terms of meditative journeys. And in terms of power of prayer, uh, I would say there's plenty of evidence in the scientific world that prayer can have tremendous benefit. I often recommend the books of my good friend, Dr. Larry Dossey. Uh, Healing Words is one of the best on the power of prayer. 
and also be careful what you pray for. So uh, I, I highly recommend those books. But uh, the reality is I've seen prayer become a, a tremendous gift. For me, when I talk about meditation, uh, you know, in sacred acoustics, binaural beat, brainwave entrainment, it's always a form of centering prayer. And centering prayer is just kind of a thy will not mine be done. It's an admission that the you can trust in the forces of the universe to give you what you need, not necessarily what you ask for. But as long as you are cultivating a sense of love, connection, kindness, mercy, acceptance, that you are at one with your higher soul and with the soul of the universe, with that God force at the core of the universe, that knowing and that trust is very powerful at bringing the world of your dreams into fruition. Mm. That's so true. I'd love to know why did they bring you back? Did they say to you like, all right, it's your time to go back now? Like, why didn't they keep you on the other side? Well, you know, it was, uh, as often happens, it was my choice to come back. And it was not from the perspective of having any understanding of dying or being Eben Alexander. I mean, by the end of my coma journey, I was still amnesic for all the events of my life. But what happened at the end, there were six faces that appeared to me uh, that would bubble up out of the muck. And they were important because uh, they were a family and friends who were there in the ICU room the last day or two that I was in coma. So what that showed me was the vast majority of the coma journey had to happen between days one and four or one and five of the seven-day coma. But it was really the sixth face that I saw that brought me back to this world. It was a 10-year-old boy. I didn't recognize him at the time, and I promise you I didn't see him with my eyes or hear him with my ears, but it was my son Bond. They had protected him from the worst news during that week, but now on day seven of coma, the doctors held a conference Well, they said I'd gone from 10% chance of survival down to 2%, no chance of recovery. So it was time to take me off the ventilator and stop the antibiotics. When Bond heard that, he knew things were much worse than he'd been told. Came running down the hallway into ICU bed 10, pulled open my eyelids that were taped shut. And I, one eye looking over there, one eye over there, neither pupil working. Anybody in medicine knows that's a horrible picture. But he was pleading with me, Daddy, you're going to be okay. Daddy, you're going to be okay, as if somehow that would make it so. Now, uh, I didn't understand the words, and I didn't recognize them. But that pleading was what drew me back to this world. Through this whole uh, set of journeys in the spiritual realm with my amnesia, I had always thought this can continue, it can cease, it doesn't matter. But now everything mattered because I sensed this deep sense of connection with another soul. I had some responsibility to go back, but I didn't know what back meant, back where, what. And uh, so anyway, but that's what started my journey back to this world. And my higher soul navigated my way back to that ICU bed. Do you think that when we die that everyone has that choice to come back? Because obviously more people don't come back than do. Well, I think it depends on how far along in your lifetime you are. For many people are told it's not your time yet. You have more to do. Uh, I mean, I, it certainly became clear to me as I came back to this world, uh, started sharing my story, that I certainly had a, a renewed sense of purpose in life. Uh, it was, you know, the, the, that recognition of who that spiritual guide on the butterfly wing was that I didn't really get until four months post-coma because I didn't recognize her because of my amnesia and because also I had, I had never met that beautiful guardian angel 
once I recognized what had happened, and of course, the other thing is the case report on my medical records makes it clear not only was my brain in no shape to have a dream or hallucination, but the other thing is the, case, the peer reviewers at the journal demanded, how do you explain this unprecedented case, this miraculous recovery? How do you explain it? And the three doctors who wrote the case report, who were not involved in my care, but fascinated by my recovery, said it's because he had a near-death experience. That's what allowed for this uh, unprecedented healing. And that's, that was a fact that was becoming crystal clear to me, too that uh, to, uh, uh, you know, come back from that journey, and not only that, but to thrive, you know, to actually uh, come back to such a healthy state uh, is really inexplicable. And yet they knew of other cases of people who had had profound near-death experiences, like Anita Morjani, who basically healed her advanced lymphoma because she had a spiritual NDE. Dr. Mary C. Neal, uh, the orthopedic surgeon who had an over 30-minute warm water drowning kayaking in Chile back in the late 1990s, had a profound uh, spiritual journey, and it gave her healing. So these are tremendous indicators to us of the power of mind over matter and the role spirituality can play in our healing and bringing all of us into wholeness so that they serve as lessons for each and every one of us uh, to come to acknowledge more fully our power as a spiritual being and as a soul to bring wholeness and healing to our lives. So do you think that we all have guardian angels, like every one of us has a guardian angel and a spirit guide, and what are the difference between the two of them? Well, I believe that we all have uh, spirit guides, and uh, certainly guardian angels are a big part of that. My belief on a lot of that uh, comes from my having been exposed to uh, Lorna Byrne, the uh, Irish uh, uh, woman who has had uh, written about, she wrote a book called Angels in My Hair, and I presented with her several times, and uh, she is just a a beautiful, very advanced soul, Uh, and she convinced me that we all have our spirit guides, we just have to wake up to that, and that we all have guardian angels that are there taking care of us. It's important to point out that uh, beliefs, thoughts, and attitudes are absolutely critical in our deeper understanding of this. And uh, I can tell you as a scientist that I've come to recognize that beliefs, thoughts, and attitudes that lead me more towards acknowledging the reality of these spiritual forces can be very beneficial. Now, you can fool yourself in two ways. You can refuse to believe what is true. And so there are many people, especially in our hardcore kind of pseudo-skeptical materialist society, who claim to be skeptical, but they're really just denying the evidence. The evidence for the afterlife and for reincarnation is overwhelming. If you go to BigelowInstitute.org, you will find more. You will find 28 essays that were written two years ago by uh, someone who demanded from the scientific community what's the best scientific evidence for the reality of the afterlife, for for, uh, conscious awareness after permanent bodily death. And uh, they were going to give out three prizes. Uh, The the essays were of such high quality and all from people who had demonstrated more than five years' experience studying the afterlife questions scientifically. And all 28 essays are available for free to the reading public. If you start reading those essays, you'll realize this is no longer a question of whether or not science validates the reality of the afterlife and reincarnation. The truth is right there. Just start doing the reading. Jeffrey Mishlaw's first place essay is well worth it for anybody. 
There are several very scientific essays in, at BigelowInstitute.org. Uh, Bernardo Castro, Julie Beichel, Ken Van Lommel, uh, those are all three of the uh, best, most scientific essays. But once you start reading that, your beliefs will shift because you'll understand the scientific basis for afterlife is absolutely established. And from this point forward, for any materialist scientist to claim that these are all woo-woo nonsense and they, they, they don't fit our scientific models, all that scientist is showing you is that they're willfully ignorant of the facts. Go to BigelowInstitute.org. Before we finish up, I want to ask you the question about why we're here. And from what I've read in your book, it, it, it's so we are here to actually have this spiritual experience, even though a lot of us deny that. But what is your understanding of that from when you had your NDE? I think we're here really to discover ourselves, just like the uh, entrance to the Temple of Apollo at Delphi in Greece. The, over the entrance is the inscription, Know Thyself. And in so many ways, this is about coming to know ourself. And when you realize that yourself is not just your little ego mind, and when you realize you're sharing mind with the universe at large, it means get to know the universe. And the universe then offers us uh, secrets about our reason for being, our, our inner relationships, the nature of the mind-brain connection, our spiritual nature. We have far greater wisdom to discover. Society at large is doing this. The scientific community at large is doing this. But so can the individual seeker. Uh, and I cannot think of a worse waste of my lifetime than to have spent the rest of my life harboring those false and bleak uh, fiction of my materialist beliefs before coma to the end of my life. And then on my deathbed, discovering when my loved ones come to welcome me over that I had it wrong all along. So it's best for us to get it right now. Pay attention to what NDEs are teaching us. Know that the science of consciousness is teaching this is a scientifically uh, validated fact about reality. We are eternal souls. We're all in this together. We're here to take care of each other. It's all about the binding force of love. And that's what will lead us into wholeness and healing from all of our societal ills. Do you have a favorite prayer or saying or mantra? I do. I am sorry. Please forgive me. I love you. Thank you. It's the, the Hanumana Panu prayer of, uh, from the Hawaiian culture. And it pretty much says it all. Love, gratitude, amends, forgiveness. It's a good one. What is the best advice that you have ever been given? Well, I can tell you, I'm, I'm very grateful to my oldest son, Evan IV, who got home two days after I got out of the hospital. And he told me to write everything down before I read anybody else's near-death experience. That was incredibly powerful advice that uh, uh, I think changed my life because I was, uh, you know, when I came out of coma, I had not really read the NDE literature. I had no idea what it was all about. And I wanted to dive into it deeply. And he said, no, Dad, don't do that. I remember he had driven home overnight. He'd heard that I was not sleeping much since my coma. I was so energized by the experience. And he, and he greeted me at dawn at, at my front door, gave me a big hug. He told me later it was like there was this uh, light shining within me, like I was far more present than I'd ever been before. And I remember telling him it was way too real to be real 
I mean, my doctors had told me, you can forget about it. The dying brain plays all kinds of tricks. So I started my journey as my own worst skeptic, thinking it had to be a vast hallucination. But that's before I read all my medical records and realized that brain could not have a hallucination or a dream. But it was my son's advice, write down everything you remember about your own experience before you read anybody else's NDE. And in, in many ways, for my entire journey, that's some of the best advice I ever received was kind of be true to my heart, be authentic to my journey, to share it. And I, then I had that database of 20,000 words that I wrote over about six weeks, my story very purely uninfluenced by anyone else's stories. What is a life of greatness to you? I think a life of greatness is really one where one comes to fully understand much more richly their reason for being born, why they're here, and great satisfaction in discovering that truth and sharing it authentically through the heart with their fellow beings in a way that leads all of our fellows along a pathway of, uh, of deeper understanding and of uh, coming into fullness and wholeness in their being. Dr. Eben Alexander, it's been an absolute joyous occasion to chat to you today. You've answered so many of my questions that I've been thinking about for such a long time. So thank you for sharing your experience with us today. It's so greatly appreciated. Well, Sarah, thanks so much for having me on and thanks for what you do getting this out to the world. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Your Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my manifestation course and meditations, head to the shop tab at sarahgrimberg.com or this week's episode show notes to find a link. If you love what you heard, we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. Listener.